You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. Our reading this morning comes from John 11, verses 45 through 57. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Do you not understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish? He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. It is an amazing thing to me how people can look at the same event but have completely opposite reactions. This is true from things not so serious like a football game. One side is celebrating at the end of the game. The other team is discouraged. Same event, very different reaction. It's true for more serious things, like what happened in the event of 9-11. When those planes flew into those buildings, it left us a grieving nation, with, and many were angered at the injustice and the sheer evil of those actions. Yet at the very same time, on the other side of the world, hundreds of thousands of people were dancing in the street for joy at what had happened. Same event, a very different reaction. The same could be said about elections. One candidate wins and celebrates and claims a mandate from the people, the losing candidate bemoans the loss and tries to make sure the winner doesn't get his or her way. Same event, very different reactions. Something similar to that happened in John chapter 11. One of the most glorious miracles of Jesus Jesus' life that he performed caused some people to rejoice while it upset other people. In John chapter 11, we looked at this last week, those first 44 verses, Jesus brought Lazarus back to life after he had been dead for four days. For Lazarus, 
and his sisters, Martha and Mary, for Jesus' disciples who had, who had come along with Jesus, for the many who, observe, who had observed this incredible event. They were rejoicing. Their, their faith was increased. They believed even more in Jesus. Yet, for others, Jesus raising Lazarus to life was disconcerting. And it was met with scorn, and it was met with doubt, and it was met with scheming. Because of this miracle, the religious leaders actively plot to kill Jesus, lest, they say, too many people start to believe in him and start to go after him and start to follow him. You know, just, just a quick note, even here at the beginning of this sermon... It's just important to always keep in mind that Satan and this world and the systems of this world actively resist people believing in Jesus. There is never a moment where Satan and his forces and the world and its systems are not aligning themselves in opposition to Jesus Christ and the gospel. There's never a moment where they take a break from that. They are always actively opposing Jesus Christ. We need to keep this in mind as we think about these things. We should be clear that in sharing the truth of the gospel and in sharing the love of Christ, it will be met with belief by some because of God's regenerating work, but it will also be met with hostility by others. That's why Jesus said in John 15, we'll get to that in a few months, or at the rate we're going, a few years. We'll get to that in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Because you are not of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, Jesus said, they will also persecute you. I think we need to make sure we're not surprised by persecution and hatred and opposition in the world. Because when we get surprised by it, our reaction to that isn't what Jesus commanded. Our reaction tends to be we go on the offensive. Or we start to bully. Or some other reaction that, that Jesus explicitly says not to do. So still, we are surprised at least I am, that anyone would respond with such hostility to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It's hard to believe that you could have seen that and not believed in Jesus. But that is obviously what happened. And when it was reported back to the religious leaders what had happened, it sent them on a whole other path of opposition to Jesus. So there's much in this this, this passage and in the response of these religious leaders to Jesus uh, much that we can learn. And so in this passage, there are three truths I want us to look at this morning. The first is this. The dangers of a politicized faith. The dangers of a politicized faith. This is in verses 45 through 48. We are told that many of the Jews who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, that they believed in Jesus. But others, seeing the same event, didn't believe, and they went off to let the religious leaders know what had happened. It was almost like they were snitching, they were telling on Jesus. 
And again, how could people see the power of Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and it not humble them and bring them to believe in Jesus? How could they think, hey, we better let the religious leaders know before this gets out of hand? And again, this just confirms what Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Remarkable. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees called a council. They, they called a council for them all to come together to address the problem of Jesus and his growing power and his growing popularity. These religious leaders felt the full threat that Jesus represented to them. They were afraid that Jesus would stir up a mess, that he would lead people away from seeking them as their spiritual guides to seeking him as their spiritual guides. They were also concerned, these people were also concerned that, that, in, their, that, that in this response to Jesus, um, that Rome would somehow get involved. They were concerned about those who had control over them. That Rome would send the military in to, to somehow either displace them as the religious leaders in Israel or basically to just take away the whole nation itself. They were afraid of their place being taken away. They were afraid of their position being taken away. They were afraid of losing control of the people. They were afraid of, of losing the popularity of the people. The religious leaders were threatened because Jesus was exposing them as illegitimate leaders. He was exposing them for what they really were. They were more concerned about their privileged position than truly loving and leading and guiding people according to the ways and laws of God. They were also very worried about Rome coming in and taking away their right to govern themselves, which was pretty severely limited anyway, but they were afraid of Rome coming in and any, eliminating any self-governing. The religious leaders knew that Rome hated disturbances in the peace. They hated anything that, that would cause some kind of ripple in the peace. They didn't like disruptors. And the religious leaders saw Jesus as a disruptor. A lot of things going on with these religious leaders. So how do we evaluate what this religious council did? They had come... Seemingly, they had come to rely on the powers of this world and earthly rulers instead of on God's power. They had aligned themselves with the powers and the government of that world instead of really giving themselves and trusting in the power of God. In a very real sense, in many ways, they, they got into bed with the political institutions of their day. Their motivation was totally about power and control and position. These are political motivations. They weren't concerned for the law of God or for the heart or the people of God. They saw their place. They saw their position. They saw their influence. They saw their power. Their very identity was all being threatened by Jesus and what he was doing. 
Family, this is timely for us. It has rarely been a good thing when the church aligns itself with any political party or candidate or government. History tells us again and again that any time the church has tried to seize political control, it never ends well. History tells us that the church thrived and grew exponentially in the first 300 years after Jesus' resurrection. And it did this without any substantial political power. It did this on the basis of the power of the gospel to save, not on the ability of the church to gain political power. The church itself was conceived in struggle. It was conceived through suffering. It was conceived through sacrifice. Our church's Lord came in weakness to suffer and die. And the church's Lord, our our Savior, calls His people to a life of denying self, taking up the cross, and following Him. Our Lord Jesus calls us to a cross-cultural and often cross-political way of life that runs contrary to what we see going on in our nation and often in the nations around the world. See, Jesus says to love your enemies. To love your political opponents if you're a Christian. Jesus says pray for those who persecute you. Jesus instructs us to turn the other cheek when we're slapped. He instructs us to go the extra mile when unjustly pressed. He instructs us to give more than what is asked. Those who seek us harm, we are to bless and serve. Do we see this anywhere in modern politics? Jesus said, greatness is defined not by who serves you, but by who you're serving. If you want to be great in God's eyes, it's not about the people you line up underneath you. It's about who you give yourself in service to. That catches the attention of our Lord. True greatness is not lording over, but it's serving under. And the church is called to help the hurting, to stand with the poor and the oppressed. The church is called to endure all things at all times, to endure it with patience and hope and love. We are told that the church is to seek first God's kingdom. And in doing that, the church is commanded To go and make disciples who follow Jesus in these kinds of ways that just mentioned. The church is to make disciples who are increasingly learning to follow Jesus in every area of life. Our hope is in Christ, not in earthly kingdoms that may or may not agree with us on some things. We never want to tie our faith to a government or a political party or a candidate. We are always tied to Christ first and only. So here's the question that comes up. What does that mean for us as Christians? Because the scripture describes for us, we're citizens of two kingdoms simultaneously. We're citizens of the heavenly kingdom and all Christians, generally speaking, are citizens of an earthly kingdom. We're members of both. 
We have citizenship, so to say, in two kingdoms. But the scripture is very clear that our primary citizenship, the one that matters most, is our heavenly citizenship. It is the kingdom of Christ. So what defines us, what dictates our actions, comes from being part of Christ's kingdom first. In coming to Christ, we change allegiances from earthly rulers and earthly ways and earthly things to Christ himself. Our hope is not in ordering this world according to our values, but Christ returning and defeating Satan and death and evil once for all. Listen, we don't bring God's kingdom in any way other than in proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. And if someone wanted to see what Christ's coming kingdom looked like, if they're wondering, where do we get a picture of that? Of what, of what, what Christ's kingdom will look like, at least to some degree. Do you know where they should look? Not at the nations. Not at governments. They look at the church. The church should be an expression of what it looks like for people to live under the rule of Jesus Christ. The church should be that kind of light on the hill that stands out as what Christ can do in the hearts of people in His love and by His grace and in His truth. But let's be clear. The church isn't The kingdom of God. It is an expression of that coming kingdom. It's not even a perfect expression. The church's mission, family, isn't political, it's spiritual. I think it's important that we hear what Jesus said in John 18. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. So many Christians are fighting. My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus said his followers have been given a different mandate. And that different mandate is to go and make disciples. And we do that with the presence of Christ. We do it with the authority of Christ. And we do it with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're on. That's the mission the church has been given. It is not to set up some kind of earthly kingdom that represents what we think should be there. Well, what does this mean? Because that... that There's still a lot of things, and I can't deal with all of this because this is a big issue. But what does it mean for us as citizens in earthly kingdoms, as Christians who are part of an earthly kingdom? We need to understand why God established governments. God established human governments to protect life, to preserve, and to preserve conditions that encourage human thriving. That's the responsibility that God gave to governments, whether they're Christian or not. Whether they believe in him or not, that is how God looks and how he sees and how he will judge all nations. God has established human governments for the outward order and good of human society. That is not the purpose of the church. Yet we do walk sometimes 
a difficult line between what our primary citizenship requires of us and what our earthly citizenship requires of us. All we do, no matter where we are or what earthly nation we belong to, listen, please, our first allegiance, our primary motivation, our utmost devotion is to Christ and His kingdom. The values and the ways that Jesus teaches us and He commands for us is what guides our actions at all times. And with humble wisdom, we look to apply the kingdom values that Jesus teaches us. We look to apply those in ways, uh, in humble ways, in whatever earthly kingdom we may be living in. I think this is one of the things that is just so remarkable about Christianity. See, this applies to all Christians in all times, no matter what government is over them. The government can be fascist. It could be a republic, it could be communist, it could be socialist. It could be run by monarchs, an oligarchy, or royal family. These earthly governments could be based on Eastern mysticism, natural law, atheism, evolution, or divine inspirations. Listen, Christians can live and thrive because our first citizenship is with Christ, and our delight is in the gospel, and our hope is in the coming kingdom of Christ. All Christians are called to seek first God's kingdom, no matter what earthly kingdom has our residence. So you could be living in China, you could be living in Saudi Arabia, you could be living in Mexico, you could be living anywhere, and you can still follow Christ, and you can still be involved with what he's given the church to do. And as part of those earthly kingdoms, we as followers of Christ can be as involved in the political process as the law allows. There's nothing that's incongruent with that and what the, what the church, purpose of the church is. You as an individual Christian, you can be involved in the political process. You can't, it's not just that you can be, there is an obligation to be. I think this is why our nation has been such a tremendous blessing for so long. Because it recognizes freedom of religion. But as Christians, we can fully, wholeheartedly be involved in the political process. We are to vote our consciences. We can lobby for what we think is right. We can wholeheartedly be involved in running for an office. We can, we can get behind a candidate that we think best represents what we think should happen in our nation. What we can't do is tie the church to any political entity. As Christians, we are to show honor to those who govern us, whether we agree with them or not. As Christians, we are to obey the law of the land as long as it does not conflict with the law of Christ. And as Christians, we are to pray for those who lead us that we may lead peaceful, quiet lives. We have a responsibility towards those who govern us. We're not looking to them to do what the church should do. We know what we're called to. So, I have personally definite opinions about a lot of things. I have definite opinions about a lot of political issues. I have opinions about President Biden. I have opinions about former President Trump. I have opinions about this upcoming election. I have opinions about immigration and border protection. I have opinions about why and what happened with COVID. 
I have opinions about the issues, pro-life issues. I have opinions about national debt. I have opinions about racial justice. I have opinions about gender identity politics. And if we were to sit down and talk, I could share those with you. And I could hear what you say. And, and some of what I may hold to may be different than what you hold to. It may even surprise you. I have, you have a constitutional right to our positions and beliefs. I can even advocate for those issues if I desire. And again, if I felt like I wanted to run for office, I can do that as a Christian. What I can't do is preach my opinions. What I can't do is lead a church to attach itself to a political party or candidate. What I am called to do as a pastor is to preach Christ and preach Him crucified. I don't preach my preferences. We're very careful. Pastor Philip and I are very, we don't preach our preferences. We preach God's word as best as we can. And certainly, listen, certainly in preaching God's word, we will be confronted by the morality that's in God's ways and in this coming kingdom that Christ is going to establish. And it will require of us that we act within our government systems. We have a right to stand up and voice what we believe to be the truth and to call leadership into accountability to that truth. What we're not about is the church seizing political power. The church can warn the government of giving way to immorality in that which is not the truth. But the church's God-given role is not to take control of the government. We must never be beholden to the state for our place, our position, or our identity. And it seems like Christians on both sides of this political divide give, away, give way to that so easily. See, God has given the church work to do. And he has given the government work to do. The government is not to do the church's work, and the church is not to do the government's work. Again, I as a citizen of the U.S., who is a Christian, I can align with the party, a candidate, as long as my goal is not pure political victory, but Christian faithfulness. We must be aware of the temptations that come when political engagement become preoccupied and becoming preoccupied with politics. This is not easy. And Christians have been walking this line from the very beginning. It was what part of these dynamics were what involved in what Jesus hit. But we are called to think about these things and to walk in this way and to understand what does it mean for me as a Christian living in the United States or a Christian who may be living in India or a Christian who may be living anywhere around the world how do I honor Christ but yet be a good citizen as well in that earthly kingdom we must not let our fascination with human political structures or political issues displace our love for Christ for the gospel for the church and for his coming kingdom. So first we see from this the dangers of a politicized faith. Second, we see the foolishness of an arrogant leader. Verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So Caiaphas 
was the current high priest. And so now this meeting has been going on, you can imagine, going back and forth. Basically, Caiaphas, the high priest, he stands up and he basically rebukes all the religious leaders. And he basically says, you're panicking. Y'all need to calm down here. You're missing what's really happening. And he basically tells them, we need to put up with the lesser evil to avoid a bigger evil. See, the religious leaders again were afraid Jesus would stir the anger of the Romans, so they wanted to silence him. But Caiaphas thinks it is okay if Jesus stirs the anger of, the, of Rome, because the anger of Rome would be unleashed at Jesus and not at them. One of the things we know about the high priest in this time is that the high priest would have been expected to collaborate with the Roman government. Matter of fact, there's indication that that whoever was ruling locally in that area, who was the Roman ruler, he would have appointed the high priest every year. So there was this connection, there was this binding between the Roman government and the, the high priest, and that obviously was affecting the whole council. As high priest, Caiaphas' true calling was to fear God, not Rome. His calling was to lead the people to please God, not Rome. His purpose was to uphold God's laws, not bow to Roman consent. His motives are highly suspect in his words to the religious council. He showed little regard for God. He wasn't talking about God. He wasn't talking about the law. He, he might have been talking about the good of the people, but not really. He wasn't, certainly wasn't talking about truth. Those were none of the things he was concerned about with Jesus. So Caiaphas led the religious council to this conclusion. They need to put Jesus to death. Even if Caiaphas' motives could somehow be construed as good, they didn't lead to a good end. If his concern was for the safety of Jerusalem by rejecting Christ as the true Messiah, and then what we know from history, they followed other false messiahs, it ultimately led to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. William Barclay said this, the very steps they took to save their nation destroyed their nation. They acted to preserve their status and their position and, and that pitted them against what God was doing and it ended poorly for the nation. I read this from John Boyce said, you cannot frustrate God. Isn't that amazing? You think we can frustrate? You cannot frustrate God. You can oppose him but only you will pay the consequences, as did these men. You may oppose him, but Christianity will spread. The Bible says many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will, establish, that will be established. Caiaphas foolishly and arrogantly opposed God, but God's plan won out. God's plan always wins out. So we've seen the danger of a politicized faith, the foolishness of an arrogant leader. Finally, we see the redemptive power of a sovereign God. The redemptive power of a sovereign God. John makes it clear that though the religious leaders think they have power, God is the one who's truly controlling what is happening. Verses 51 and 52. Uh, he did not say this, meaning Caiaphas, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus 
What, what happened here is God filling Caiaphas prophesied truth. It was not a truth that he understood. What he spoke, it was a truth, but he didn't understand it. And it was a truth he probably didn't intend. But through that, God was working something sovereignly. Basically, he's saying in this pro prophecy, he says, he's answering the question, why did Jesus die? In verse 50, it is better for one man to die for the people. And of course, he meant it as if Jesus' death would remove the problem of Rome coming in to take away their position and power. That's how he saw it. What we know is that God sovereignly was speaking through someone, even like Caiaphas, to point to Jesus' atoning death. Jesus would die for the nation, but also for all God's children scattered abroad. This is an important point of clarification. Jesus' death was not meant to be a motivational example of sacrifice, love, humility, and courage. His death was a vicarious death in which sacrifice, love, humility, and courage were all displayed. It's an important distinction. Our world is comfortable with Jesus' death being some kind of motivational example. They're not comfortable with Jesus' death being vicarious. Vicarious is this important word. It means something is performed or something is exercised or received or something is suffered in the place of another. It means that Jesus' death was in place of our death. He died in our place. Sacrifice means he gave his life in payment for the sin of others, for our sin. See, Jesus' death was not merely a statement against evil. It was not merely an expression of love. It was a payment that satisfied God's holy justice. Jesus' vicarious death means it was for us, in our place, for our sin. He suffered the judgment of God on our sin so we would not have to. Listen, all sin is judged. Either it's judged on the cross some 2,000 years ago, or it will be judged when a person stands before God on that day to give an account. No sin is going to escape judgment. Please hear this this morning. Jesus suffered the full judicial consequences for our sin. I know this is hard for some people to accept. It makes God seem harsh and vengeful. Some people think this is an overreaction. Yet what people fail to understand is how egregiously awful sin is. Sin is no small slight against God. It is cosmic treason. It is open rebellion. It is defiance of God. It is saying, I would just assume, God, you not be there. People often don't understand that love doesn't exclude judgment. Love necessitates judgment. Love makes it necessary. For God to truly 
Be loving. He must hate what is evil and what is destructive. Sin is evil. Sin is destructive and can only be paid for by death. And this really takes us back to the Old Testament. It is important for us to note all those Old Testament sacrifices that were required. You go back and read Leviticus. For some people, they find that a hard read. But when you understand what was taking place there and how that was setting the foundation for what Jesus would do, it just comes alive. But in Leviticus, we're given a graphic picture of the sacrificial animals who died in the temple, who were died as sacrifices for sin. It's hard for us to get... It was a gory sight to go into the temple. It was gory. It wasn't some beautiful sacrifice. It was blood. It was the smell. One, one, one teacher said this. In Leviticus, we find detailed instructions for offering sacrifices. Five regular offerings that will invade all of the Israelite senses. Informing their minds and engaging their hearts in regard to the seriousness of sin as well as the possibility and provision of a substitute. See, the way God structured, structured the temple sacrifice in this gory way. But God was doing something in the hearts and in the minds of his people. He was making it clear when someone sins, something dies. He wanted them to associate death with sin in all of these sacrifices. And he did this because this was ultimately paving the way for Christ who would one day come and be the full and final sacrifice. Hebrews 10 tells us, pointing back to what Leviticus was talking about, Verse, verse 11, Hebrews 10. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. When you sit down, that means the work is over. It says the same kind of thing in Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus offered his own blood to secure our redemption. He died so that we could live through his atoning death. And you know the rest of the New Testament. Just picks up on this very theme. That was begun in the Old Testament. First Peter 1. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. But you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb. Without blemish or spot. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, for our sake, He made Him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He took on our curse. And then finally in 1 Peter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, listen, that he might bring us to God. Listen, the way Caiaphas' prophecy is written helps us understand that Jesus' death was not just to make salvation possible, which it did, but his death actually directly redeemed God's people. Jesus died for his group, for his children, it says, to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Listen, John again is helping us to see the wondrous and mystery of the doctrine of election. John tells us there are children of God. They're scattered abroad. But these children, they're like sheep. When they hear the voice, they'll respond. I think this, these are the ones that Jesus identified back in chapter 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. It is for those, it is for, for these people that he died and for all those who will be brought to faith by the regenerating power of the Spirit of God. We see Caiaphas planned harm and evil against Jesus. God was at work to bring about salvation. The truth of Jesus' atoning sacrifice lies at the heart of the Christian faith and it must ultimately be accepted and believed for salvation. The religious leaders were trying to preserve Jerusalem as the gathering place. And to this day, they still talk about Jerusalem as a gathering place. I don't know if you've ever been part of a modern Seder, a Passover Seder. But at the end of it, one of the things they sing and shout out is, see you in Jerusalem. They still think that way. Jesus himself became the gathering place for his people. At his cross, where justice and mercy met, our salvation was finally and fully accomplished. And he gathers us in himself. His sacrifice for sin, listen to this, ended all other sacrifices for sin. Only one sacrifice has ever been fully and finally acceptable to God. And that was the death of his son in our place for our sin. In Jesus' death, he took our, took our curse, incurring divine just, justice. And he died our death. Family, friends, there is no other sacrifice for sin available. The sin you carry, your only hope for that to be dealt with is turning to Jesus. There's no other sacrifice. Christian, the sin you're carrying in your heart, there's only one sacrifice that's been acceptable that covers that sin. It's not you doing good or promising to do better. It's the atoning death of Jesus Christ. We can't be good enough. We can't do enough good deeds to offset or cover our sin. Our good intentions can't save us. We must run to Christ, to His cross, and only then will we find forgiveness of sin. This, that forgiveness that our soul longs for. And it is there that we will find eternal life that we so urgently and desperately need. Have you come to Jesus? Do you see His love? His goodness? The truth? 
and acknowledging your sin. A simple prayer. Lord, I see. I want to believe, Lord. I trust in you. Take my sin. It says this in Romans. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That is just such a tremendous blessing for the people of God. We will never be put to shame for believing and trusting in Jesus, ever. When we stand before our opponents, when they hurl insults, false accusations, we will never be ashamed because Christ stands with us.